Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, struggles in the defense industrial base are ringing alarm bells. As a former fighter pilot who got to fly the greatest machines built by human hands, I'm scared that my successors will not have the same opportunity. Take a page out of the college playbook to boost your agency's hiring prospects. If you do not have an alumni organization, either official or informal, that you put some time and effort into creating an alumni organization so that you can be in touch with people who are interested in returning to employment. And login.gov is the model for the TMF board leader. We see login.gov as a perfect example of making an investment in one, you know, shared service that benefits dozens of agencies. It's Thursday, February 3rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. 14 critical technology areas are on Pentagon Chief Technology Officer Heidi Hsu's new list to move from research to capability. A DOD spokesperson tells FedScoop the list is a preview of the department's full technology strategy. That document will come out after an updated national defense strategy in late spring or early summer. The Department of Homeland Security's new Cyber Safety Review Board will convene after cyber incidents to review what happened and how to respond. The model for the board is the National Transportation Safety Board that investigates air accidents. Rob Silvers, the Undersecretary for Strategy, Policy, and Plans at DHS, will be the first chair he'll serve for two years. The Navy's largest unmanned exercise ever is underway in the Middle East. U.S. Naval Forces Central Command says 60 partner nations and organizations are participating over 18 days. Ten of those partners will test more than 80 unmanned systems during the exercise. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week is less than a month away now. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. Lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal Trade Commission's trying to stop the latest big defense industrial base acquisition. Lockheed Martin wants to buy Aerojet Rocketdyne for $4.4 billion. Colonel Wes Hallman, U.S. Air Force retired, is Senior Vice President for Strategy and Policy at the National Defense Industrial Association. Wes, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I would take from that transaction that the defense industrial base is very healthy. You and your colleagues have found something different. What gives you reason to believe the defense industrial base is not as healthy as it looks like from the headlines. Welcome. Thanks, uh, Francis, for, for having me. And as you know, we've been doing this uh, annual report on the, the health and readiness of the defense industrial base uh, now for three years. Um, uh, that is an unclassified data-driven uh, document that really looks at the, the defense industry, the, the environment that, that this industry has to operate in, and not so much about the companies themselves. So uh, the way I would answer is you that that uh, there are there are companies there are, there are some strong companies in the defense industrial base that that still produce absolutely the best of the best for our warfighters. But when you look at the industry as a whole and its um, and really its ability to thrive, grow, draw new entrants, et cetera, over time we've seen an erosion. Uh, in fact, the first one that we did, uh, uh, Vital Science 2020, when that came out, we graded. The, the, the health of the defense industrial base at a, at a middle C, 
There was some erosion last year in, in uh, the 2021 report, which importantly, the data for that was drawn. It was all right on the cusp of COVID. So this is the first year that we're looking at, at the data with co the evolving impacts of COVID. And really, that's what pushed us over the line into failing territory below a 70. And what I would say is, and we can dive into the data, that all of the vulnerabilities and weaknesses we saw in previous reports were really amplified by the COVID crisis, whether that's on workforce, supply chain, uh, you know, uh, some financial measures and some other things, uh, you know, industrial security, these things we knew about. In fact, they were identified in uh, the Executive Order 8, uh, 13806 report that came out, you know, in 2018 from the previous administration when they looked at the defense industrial base, uh, you know, at a point in time. So, uh, as I say, I think it's important to dive into the data, but but that weakness is is really just being amplified. The uh, indicators that you list are demand, production inputs, innovation, supply chain, competition, industrial security, political and regulatory, and productive capacity and surge readiness. Eight indicators, six of them earn composite scores, uh, your team writes, lower than 80, five earn scores below 70, a grade considered failing. What's the takeaway from that? It, should we look at this as a snapshot or should we look at this at the as the trend that you just outlined or is it a combination of both, Wes? A, a little bit of a combination of both. Again, I think you're going to see even more impacts of COVID in next year's data because that data is a lagging indicator. You know, we will be pulling uh, data for Vital Signs 2023 here in about March timeframe when we pull it. And that's really the amalgamated data from this last year we just went through. So the, the except for our annual survey, um, it's really a lagging indicator. And so, uh, yes, there's a point aspect of it, but I really think that you need to look at that trend data. And what that trend data tells you is that, and one of the things we can talk about is, is that, uh, that, uh, that, that political uh, piece, that, that you, the political and regulatory piece uh, that you look at it, we have increasing uh, regulatory burdens on the defense industrial base, and we have decreasing political interest in the topic, you know, and that's that's gauged on mentions in congressional hearings and other things where uh, these issues are not being taken up. What that means is that you're not paying attention to this. You, you're actually taking this industry sector for granted, and, and the fact is, we can't do that as a nation. We have to look at what is that regulatory burden? Why is it that uh, we've had thousands and thousands of companies leave the defense industrial base since the, uh, you know, over the last decade plus? And at the same time, uh, between FY19 and FY20, we had an almost halving of the new entrants. So from a little over 12,000 to over 6,000 new entrants year over year, and this year, even despite COVID and all the contracting that went on, all the shift of commercial companies into defense because it was seen as a safe haven, the you know the Defense Production Act contracts that were given out to produce masks and ventilators, those were considered defense contracts. Despite all, despite all that, we still saw another decrease in number of new entrants. So I think the indicators tell you that 
We are not incentivized. We're not creating an environment where companies can thrive, and we're not incentivizing new companies, new entrants, and non-traditionals to come into this sector over time. The recitation that I made about the uh, the scores that are lower than we would like uh, was under uh, areas of concern in your work. Under areas of confidence, uh, demand appears to be good. Competition is a strength, um, and so it's not all bad news. Right. What do you see moving forward, Wes, as the solution to uh, enhance the good things and cut back the bad things to reverse the trend that we're detecting over these three years? First off, I think that uh, as a nation, we need to focus on uh, on investments that are going to pay off on the future. One of the things that, that, that we didn't note uh, is that one of those key indicators that dropped into the failing uh, category this year is innovation. I mean, we're a nation that prides itself on innovation, especially in the defense sector. I mean, that's the way we've maintained our superiority, you know, from World War II through the end of the Cold War to, to today. And the fact is that those gaps are are, are closing, if not com- completely closed, and we've been, uh, frankly, passed by, uh, by competitor nations. And the reason why is we stopped investing in two things. One is basic research. As a nation, our share of uh, our, our share of GDP going to basic research has not been lower since the early '50s. At the same time, where Russia and importantly China have doubled, tripled, you know, over five times investments over time, and 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 as a percentage of GDP, are outpacing us in those basic investments, and those are the seed corn. That gets us innovation in the future. So innovation has dropped down to a 69, which is uh, which is horrifying. So investments in that, and then importantly, uh, Francis, and I and I got to make this point is investments in our workforce. Increasingly, our companies are finding that their greatest challenge is finding the skilled workforce to produce the systems of the future. All of your findings, Wes are confirmations in my mind of the things that I see on an anecdotal basis. You've pulled together this information and assembled it in a way that's easy for me to consume, but I don't see anything here, unfortunately, that's a terrible surprise. What do we do with this to move the needle? Well, this is the entire reason why NDIA is doing this. So we have this data and it can inform a debate on Capitol Hill and in the Pentagon and elsewhere that, hey, there is a problem. You know, we saw, you know, when we first produced this and, and I got a C, we got some, eh, some poo-poos, some, some people were interested. Some people thought we were throwing member companies under the bus, et cetera. But we were saying, hey, this is about the environment. Look at it. And now that we've dropped, as in total dropped into the failing category, we really hope this serves Francis as a basis. You'll note that we make no recommendations in this document itself. The reason why is we really want this to be foundational to to really inform a debate that has a, 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 you know an honest debate about some real policy changes and investments that that we need to make as a nation to really get back to where we need to be because you know it matters national security matters who who gets to make the rules who gets to set the standards, et cetera, it matters. And without a power base, we can't do it. And without the defense industrial base, our military will suffer over time. And as a a former fighter pilot who got to fly the greatest machines built by human hands, 
I'm scared that my successors will not have the same opportunity. A quick final thought, Wes. You've mentioned COVID a number of times as uh, one of the contributors here. How much of this goes away if, I know that's a big if, if COVID goes away and how much of it sticks around and and provides a residual effect in, in out years, even if we go back to what might be considered some kind of normal cadence uh, as we did yeah, pre-COVID? I, I think that's an important question because I, I think that uh, honestly that we are, uh, uh, we're kidding ourselves if we think that post-COVID suddenly all of this gets fixed. As I noted up front in your first question is really what COVID has done is highlight the vulnerabilities that were already inherent on supply chain, on workforce, uh, you, you, on innovation, et cetera. It, it just goes to show you that these were problems. And the fact is that this was the little nudge that 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 took you now to, to blow a passing grade. So uh, uh, honestly, I, I don't believe they go away. I think they maybe get a little bit better, but I think the trend line will remain uh, what it is now, which is uh, on a glide path where we don't want it to go. Wes Hallman, thanks very much. It's great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, Francis. Thanks again for having me on. You can find a link to the Vital Signs Report in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Agencies can hire 4,000 employees to support the new infrastructure legislation. The Office of Personnel Management will create a special hiring authority to do it. Jerry Buckholtz is strategic advisor at the Bolden Group. She's former chief human capital officer at NASA. Jerry, welcome. It's great to see you again. This special hiring authority causes me to think at some point we're going to have a special hiring authority for everything, and then we won't need the regular system anymore. How far off am I and how far off maybe should I be from how we fix the hiring and retention process that you and I and others have been talking about for years. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me again. And you are saying what many, many other people have been saying for quite some time now, and that is, at what point are there so many special authorities that there is no longer a competitive career civil service? That's probably going to go on for a long time to come. There is not any appetite in Washington, up on the Hill, to really dig hard into civil service reform, to change the fundamental laws that govern federal employment. And so the likelihood of Congress redirecting its attention away from the very important things that they are working on right now is very, very small, if not, it's non-existent. So then you come to, well, what next? And it is a situation for the foreseeable future where agencies are going to need to optimize the toolkit that they have. And certainly it is possible to do that. It is neither elegant nor particularly pleasant. And yet you can make the tool set work if you really want to really need to dedicate your time, your people and money to making that happen. So optimizing the tool set that one has encompasses what exactly? What are the things in that box that one can use that, that then that person can optimize to, to really drive change in their organization. 
So the recently published playbook that OPM issued in support of this infrastructure effort is really quite excellent. And I suggest that every HR professional in the federal government, every contractor who supports HR across the federal government, and every federal government manager go find that playbook, which is out and available to look at, and put a link for that on their desktop so they can access it easily and quickly. It's a very good summary of federal hiring and what all the options and choices are. It's very readable and it has all of the active links in it that you need to get to all the pieces of information that you need to come up with a good strategy and execute a good strategy. In addition to that, nearly every federal agency has its own hiring authorities, special authorities, special employment authorities. So as a companion piece to this federal government playbook, agencies might want to take a little bit of time, they have not done so already, to compile all of those uh, authorities that are unique to their organization into a similar playbook so that you've got a volume one federal government and a volume two your specific agency. And certainly having everything together in one place so that you can speak knowledgeably and reference back to an authoritative source is very, very helpful. That playbook is posted on the Chief Human Capital Officers Council's website. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com, Jerry. What I like about that playbook is there are a couple instances of myths that they bust. And, and these are myths that I hear. So it's not just, it, it, it's not just anecdotal. The myth, one of the myths they write about in here is hiring managers should refrain from becoming too involved in their hiring actions to avoid any appearance of impropriety in the hiring process. And then they go into great but understandable detail uh, about why that isn't true and why it's actually a bad idea, right? Yes, hiring managers can be very, very wary of doing anything that has even a whiff of pre-selection. And it's very important for a hiring manager to understand where those lines are because, of course, you do not want to step over those lines, especially when OPM auditors show up at your door. On the other hand, it's absolutely critical that a hiring manager be involved all the way through the process from the very beginning of the drafting of the position description in order to achieve a good outcome This is a partnership process where there are clear handouts, handoffs between the HR office and the manager all the way through. And at the end of the day, it's the manager who makes the decision, not the HR professional. So it's, you know, kind of reviewing all of those, understanding where those lines are, understanding what the absolutely do nots are. That's important. Uh, Shalonda Young, the nominee to become the permanent OMB director, she's the acting OMB director now, said at her confirmation hearing this week that she and uh, the deputy director for management, Jason Miller, are working on things that they can do to bring people in faster, improve the hiring process. What can happen at the OMB level, though? What, how much latitude do they really have and how much of that resides in OPM and how much of it actually resides in Congress to allow uh, the government, uh, the executive branch to change things on its own? It's always really important to understand what's law, what's regulation and what's policy. And there are lots, lots of policies that have taken on the weight of law. And it's really important to know that there are no policy police. 
And there are very few instances where you cannot change regulation. The law is written much broader than people often realize. So it's really a commitment to going through and finding the disconnects between the current employment environment and old regulatory requirement. And a really good example of that is the recent change to the reinstatement of federal government employees. This was a poll, there was a policy that said that you could only come back at the same level that you left at, which meant that if someone went off and got an additional 10 years of experience, if they had left as a GS9, they couldn't come back as a GS13, they could only come back as a GS9. And it was a real uh, prohibition for people to return to federal employment and absolutely contrary to the fundamental concepts of the first retirement system. The whole point of the first retirement system was so that people could go in and out of federal service seamlessly. They have now fixed that rule. Employees can get credit for the years of, uh, of experience they've acquired in the private sector and return to federal service at a higher grade. My suggestion to agencies would be, if you do not have an alumni organization, either official or informal, that you put some time and effort into creating an alumni organization so that you can be in touch with people who are interested in returning to employment with your organization and really sort of foster this idea that has always existed among federal government lawyers that you move in and out of federal employment as your career and your life circumstances change. A lot there to chew on, Jerry. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your insight today. Thank you. You can read more about the new hiring tools in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Friday's show, the next generation of the Fatara scorecard. One of the architects of the forthcoming version 14.0 will be Carol Harris of the Government Accountability Office. She's on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Technology Modernization Fund has a billion dollars to award to agencies that have IT upgrades to do. One of the criteria the TMF board will use is how projects improve customer experience according to the White House Executive Order on CX. Raylene Young is Executive Director of the TMF Board. Dave Zvenich is Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. My colleague Billy Mitchell asked them both how the EO on CX impacts their missions. Dave Zvenich says there are a number of reasons why that EO is important to TTS. One is that it really speaks to, I think, a core principle that we have at TTS, which is that the public comes first. Um, you know, ultimately, one of the things that we have recognized over the years, and uh, we, we see this expressed in the executive order, is that it is all too easy for agencies to think about themselves and just sort of say, well, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me? Um, as opposed to putting the user, the, the customer, as it were, in the, in the center of the, the work. Um, and the executive order really pushes, um, pushes agencies to think about what the user need actually is and to put that, put that squarely into the center. Um, 
and it does that, I think, through a couple of really, really interesting approaches. So one, obviously, is the, is the express policy, um, but then it has a list of commitments. And so among those commitments are things like, you know, thinking about USA.gov as a front door for um, services. Obviously, um, login.gov um, is going to be uh, important there, too, with work with the VA. Um, there's work that we're going to be doing with high-impact service providers uh, that are expressed in there. Um, and then also this real focus on shared services too. So really mentioned this idea of sort of the government-wide uh, approach. Um, and one of the great things that's called out in the executive order is, um, is building on some of the experience and, and work that we've done over the years around shared services. So I mentioned lock.gov, but there are others, things like search.gov and US web design system are really significant. Um, just, uh, just last week, we had something like 60 plus million you know, views on a US web design system powered website. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I think has a lot of really significant um, uh, uh, significance um, and putting the idea of accessibility and equity and um, and uh, into our workflows and making sure that we're spending time thinking about how we can best serve all, all, all of the public, um, not just serving agencies needs, I think a really exciting opportunity for us. How do, you, how do you plan to build off the momentum? Obviously, this is a, a, about a month old now. It's, it's still early. And, and sort of what are the requirements that come out of it? You spoke a little bit to the, the um, you know, some of the uh, platforms that, that TSA is kind of responsible for. But, um, you know, given the sort of top cover that the, the EO gives uh, agency like TSA and TTS, um, sort of what are your plans to kind of take that to the next step uh, looking forward? Yeah, it's and it's. I, I think part of this is building on going from strength to strength. So in in the last year, just to give you a sense of just how much you know, um, uh, how much we already have to build on top of. So login.gov has forty million you know forty million accounts at this point. Um, USA.gov had over 100, 100 million um, interactions with the public through their contact center as well as the website and other and other media. Um, and we're really thinking about how we can build on top of those strengths. Um, but it's also other programs like, you know, um, the US, uh, excuse me, the US Digital Core, right? So we launched US Digital Core, um, which is gonna be bringing the next generation of technologists in. And that's something that um, like the TMF, we received an infusion of capital as part of the American Rescue Plan and using that as a way to think about how we can create um, new talent uh, within, within government, bring folks who are uh, uh, gonna be new to government um, and early career technologists who are going to be thinking about from day one how we can best serve the, the user needs, um, I think is something that is pretty pretty exciting about. Um, and building on top of the experience that we've had with the PIV program is obviously you know ATF and centers of excellence. So we have a lot of strengths sort of already to build on top of. Um, and part of part of what I'm working on, part of what the administrator is is working throughout GSA is to say how do we how do we take those strengths, build on them um, to extend. Um, extend what's already working um, and to to find new ways to better serve our uh, our partners and the public. And just to add on a little bit, your question of like, you know, how do we kind of use the, C, the, the EO, the CX, the customer service phrasing? I, I think I'll just say one thing I, I'm already seeing and we're already seeing is, you know, it, it gives more vocabulary to, I think, agencies seeking to modernize and improve their technical systems to also incorporate that user experience. And it's kind of establishing that common language that agencies can use to say, we need to improve, make these websites more accessible. We need to think about the shared user experience of a life experience that touches multiple agencies. And so I think already you can see that vocabulary kind of making it into strategic conversations, into goal setting and planning for appropriations for the next year and the following year. 
So I think there's a lot, I, I think there's definitely a lot of excitement there. Um, and, and just to echo what, what Dave said, it's, you know, I think thinking about opportunities to create these shared platforms and services and tools that work really well for maybe all agencies or multiple agencies, at least that's like really a core part of GSA. So I think we kind of see these things really feeding well together. I think there's a lot of excitement um, for this across the agency. And if I could just like piggyback a little bit one one more time too, because really sure. reminded me of something else. You know, one one thing that's um, related to the the shared vocabulary is we we do have some shared tooling that's already being used as part of the executive order as well. So for example, we have a product called Touchpoints. Um, Touchpoints has been implemented um, uh, across many agencies to collect customer feedback in sort of a structured way. Um, and we've had over 200,000 points of feedback just on touch points alone. Um, and that's, I think that's the sort of thing that as we, as we sort of normalize the idea that um, government should be responsive to the public and should be thinking particularly about how we solicit feedback and then act on that feedback, I think is really going to be part, part and parcel of, of that change. I'd like to go back to the TMF now. Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, that $1 billion injection and sort of how, um, you know, you said there's been $2 billion worth of projects that, that wanted that money, but sort of um, how you're working through that and sort of what the next steps are. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's been, it's been really exciting uh, to see. So, so a few different things. I would say, I mean, one thing that's just really interesting about the TMF is, you know, we receive and we review these proposals that come from all over the federal government. So we actually have this pretty unique bird's eye view of what federal agencies are looking to modernize. And so we're kind of in this position to, to look across and say, wow, this is a common theme that we're seeing. Or, you know, maybe this investment actually might have disproportionately large impact because it might benefit, you know, multiple agencies, or this is a shared problem that, you know, we think can benefit, like a solution in one place can benefit others. So I think what we're trying to do is, you know, really think strategically about each investment that we make and how does it most align with you know our goals for the TMF and how do we kind of like make the most of it to to kind of like uh, share with other agencies. I'll give a couple of examples. I'm, I'm kind of um, it's harder to speak more abstractly, but one example is you know a big focus of, of I think maybe always in government, but especially of the ARP and, and the investments last year was cybersecurity. So thinking about how do we improve our cybersecurity posture across the federal government. And what we did for in that example is we actually made three investments in three federal agencies. Um, working on zero trust architecture improvements. And something we did was actually create a cohort out of them. So all three agencies actually meet every other week. They talk, they exchange tips, they exchange information. And that idea was like TMF is not only, you know, maybe giving each agency funding and an opportunity to accelerate their um, zero trust journey, but now they can actually collaborate. And as a group, they can, you know, publish shared findings and help, you know, all other agencies doing the same things. Like, make a better, uh, do better at it, uh, faster results. Um, so those are the things we're really excited about doing. I think Dave mentioned login.gov. That was a big announcement we made in September last year as well. And we see login.gov as a perfect example of making an investment in one you know, shared service that benefits dozens of agencies kind of at once. Um, so those are the types of things we are looking for. I would say, uh, you know, bringing back it, bringing it back to CX. I think super excited about the CXO, CXEO, and looking for ways that the TMF could invest in accelerating of efforts across agencies, um, especially things that might affect multiple agencies. Um, so that's something we're looking at right now too. 
are there any any other changes you foresee? I mean, it sounds like you're, there's there's a more more of this emphasis on shared services, and um, obviously there there was um, some of the changes that occurred earlier last year on on some of the repayment flexibility. Anything else that um, down the pike that you could talk about that could be changing for the TMF in terms of how it operates or what kind of projects it's looking for? Yeah, I, I think one big thing is we are really scaling up the TMF team, so we're we're building more technical capacity. Um, kind of on the team to support projects and investments through their full, full life cycle. So not just, you know, analyzing proposals and, and working with the TMF board to figure out which projects to invest in, but actually assisting potentially with development and execution and, and oversight and how to get the most out of um, the work like along, along the way, which, you know, often can take a, f- a few years, yeah. uh, these projects. So that's probably a big, a big change as well. Raylene Young, the executive director of the Technology Modernization Fund at the General Services Administration with my colleague, Billy Mitchell, and Dave Zvenich of the Technology Transformation Service at GSA. You can read more about both TTS and the TMF in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Friday on the Daily Scoop Podcast, Carol Harris of the Government Accountability Office. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening. 